Would you please turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6? We'll be looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 6. And for the past few months, I've been uh, really fascinated with the books of 1 and 2 Kings. And um, they don't get a lot of clout. And even in my whole life, I'd not really spent much time in them. Uh, but I'd preached another sermon from 2 Kings back in March. And, and this summer when Bill was out on sabbatical, I actually really strongly considered doing 2 Kings um, while he was out on sabbatical, but instead chose to do the Beatitudes. But it, it seems like my whole life I've kind of neglected these great uh, historical books in 2 Kings, and, and I feel like I've been catching up on them recently, and I, and I just keep seeing some amazing things in these books. And so the, the passage that we're about to read is, is a very fascinating, a very curious passage to me. And so let me give you just a little background of what's going on in 2 Kings. And if you remember, after King Solomon, Israel split into these two countries. There's a northern side of Israel, there's a southern side of Israel, and they're two different kingdoms, and they're marked by a whole lot of bad, evil, wicked kings, which is, which is what the whole book of First and 2 Kings is about, is these wicked kings. Most of them are wicked. And it's, bar, and it's, and it's in the midst of this that God sends them uh, an amazing prophet, Elijah, and he's God's mouthpiece for the people, and he's their spiritual leader. And, and even though they have bad kings and everything's bad, he's given them these, these great spiritual leaders in Elijah. And then after Elijah, he gives them Elisha, who famously asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And so the first few chapters of 2 Kings is all about Elisha taking the mantle. And it starts off with this series of miracles that Elisha does and how he works in the life of Israel. And, and, and he's combating and he's confronting the kings of Israel. He's trying to help them, but he's also uh, combating them. He, he, they're, they're against him. And so what we see in this account are all these miracles. I think there's 14 of them in the first bit of 2 Kings. And so right in the middle of these miracles, these, these list of miracles that Elisha does, we get our passage this morning. 2 Kings 6, verses 1 to 7. And so it's a curious passage. And on first reading, it might make you think, why on earth is that in the Bible? Like, like what does that have to do with, the, with, with everything that's going on? Why is this in there? It's a very curious passage. And so before we talk about it some more, well, let's read it. So 2 Kings 6, verses 1 to 7. I'll start in verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. And so he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log... His axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. And so he reached out his hand, and he took it. Ends the reading of God's word this morning. It's a it's a wonderful passage for us today. And let's pray and, and seek God's help to understand what he's saying here this morning. 
Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us a passage like this that on first glance may not seem like much, but has a wonderful message for us this morning. And so, Father, we thank you that you care about us, that you give us something like this. Uh, Father, we need your help to understand. And so, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to help us uh, uh, understand the text, that you would illumine our minds, illumine our hearts. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, my whole life, I have been a fan of the underdog. And so it might stem from being a Southern Miss fan that, that I just always root for the little guy. It's just something that I always do. Who's playing? Whoever's ranked lower, I'm probably going to go for. Um, and I know I'm not the only one. We all love underdog stories. It's why we can be drawn to characters like Neville Longbottom and Harry Potter. He's this, this insecure, mediocre student who ends up becoming this massive hero by the end of the book. Or, or, or maybe even like the little engine that could. You know, when nobody would go over the mountain, you have this little engine that could that says, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and he succeeds. It's, it's doing the impossible. Or, or for a shout out to Bill this morning and to fill our weekly Tolkien quota, pick any hobbit out of like Bilbo, Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin. There's these small, insignificant people that play this huge role. Like we, we love the underdog story. But one of my favorite stories about this comes from real life. Uh, years ago, I got to f- visit my friend Davis, and he was working in Johnson City, Tennessee. And so we went to eat at this restaurant when we were there, and, and, and in Johnson City, in the, in the Tri-City areas of Eastern Tennessee, uh, there's a beverage there that's really local to that area, and it's called Dr. Enough. And I get to have it at this. And Davis told me the story about Dr. Enough, and so Dr. Enough is this drink, it's like a, it's like a Sprite, a lemon-lime soda. And it's a regional favorite there in East Tennessee. It's been around about 100 years. And so when Dr. Enough started taking off, uh, the Pepsi Corporation approached them uh, and wanted to buy Dr. Enough from them. And so they offered to buy that recipe. And, and so they wanted to capitalize on Pepsi wanting to buy the recipe, but they didn't want to give up their best-selling product, Dr. Enough. And so they declined to sell Dr. Enough, but they did sell Pepsi an alternative recipe. And the drink from that recipe they called Mountain Dew. And the very thing that they considered not having much value at all is now in every single convenience store, every single gas station, every single one of you know the name of Mountain Dew. Everyone in our culture knows about it. It's in movies, it's in songs, it's everywhere. They thought it wasn't very valuable, but it becomes huge. And so I think, this might be the first time this ever said, but I think our passage this morning is a lot like Mountain Dew. (laughs) Maybe when we look at it at first, we see this insignificant, unimportant passage about this guy losing an axe head. And however, what we come to find is that this passage is not insignificant at all, and it carries a lot of value for us, and it says some really profound things about the God who loves us and the God that we serve. And so today, I've got three points for us, three things that I think we can see in this passage, and the first is a small problem, the second is a supernatural provision, and the third one is a small picture. So a a simple picture, sorry. Small problem, supernatural provision, simple picture. So let's look at our first point this morning, a small problem. And so here's what happens in this passage. It starts off with what it calls the sons of the prophets. What does that mean? Uh, These aren't actually sons of the prophets. It's it's more like students. 
Uh, there, there's one commentator who says they're like seminary students. They're, they're, they're learning under Elisha. They're learning under the prophet's teaching. Uh, and so they go to Elisha, and they say, we've outgrown our current place, the place that we live. Can we go down near the River Jordan and build us a new home that we have enough room for all the people that we have here that are learning from you? And so Elisha says, go, go do it. Go build this new place. But then they ask him, well, well, Elisha, will you come with us while we do this? And Elisha says, okay, I'll go down with you to the river and to build this thing with you. And then we get to the drama of the passage and disaster strikes. Verse 5 says, one of these students was cutting a log and as he was chopping, the axe head came off and it fell into the Jordan River and it sank. And so he cries out to Elisha for help, and he reveals that the axe that he was using was borrowed from someone. It wasn't his. He borrowed it from somebody. And Elisha asks him where it fell, and the student shows him, and Elisha cuts this stick, probably off a tree, and he throws the stick into the water, and then the axe head floats up. What a curious passage. That's how it ends. Then it goes on to something else in the next paragraph. It has nothing else to say about this passage of this floating axe head. What's going on here? Wonderfully strange, curious account, isn't it? And so here's the question that I find myself asking when I was reading this passage. It seems like it's this trivial, forgettable story. What can we possibly get out of this passage today? And and I've seen a lot of explanations about what's going on here in this passage. And and, and there's some people who have said, oh, it's an embellishment. Uh, Elisha probably just stuck the stick in the water and it it happened to fit right into the head of the axe handle and he pulled it out. Or or maybe that he used the stick uh, to, to, to scoot it closer to the banks of the river and that they can pick it up easier. But that's not what the text says. It says he threw the stick in the water and then the axe floated. I've also seen some explanations of this passage that that try to say it's more of like a metaphor or an allegory. You know, it'll say something like, the axe head is our souls, the river is judgment, Uh, judgments that's consumed us, the stick is wood, the cross is made out of the wood, so therefore the stick means the cross, and our soul is saved out of the judgment of the river. But I also don't think that's what's going on here. There's no other passages around this passage that are used as allegory or used as a metaphor. I've also seen how people try to draw some rules from it on how we should live our life. Um, This is why you don't borrow items on loan. Or or this is why you need to have your tools in good shape and keep your axe sharpened so it won't bounce off. Or, or, Or maybe this is why you hire actual construction workers and don't use seminary students to try to build stuff. You know, one writer pointed out, someone could say, don't build on waterfront property. You know, the applications that you can draw from this to try to moralize it are really limitless, right? But I don't think it's any of that either. And so what does it mean, Jeremy? Well, I think this passage is a very simple story about a no-name guy that has a small problem and a God who's attentive to the small problems. A God who cares about it. In the chapter before it, in the chapter after it, there's these accounts that deal with like international politics, of of foreign relations, military battles, national leaders dealing with disease, these big grand things, right? And right in the middle of it, 
we see that God cares about this little axe head. And so what's the big deal about this axe head? It seems like it's such a small problem to us. And, and so in our context, it is. If we borrow like a tool from somebody and it breaks, we can go down to Lowe's and get another one, right? Axes are cheap or shovels or whatever, right? We, it's so easy for us just to go down to Lowe's and get another one. But, but 2,000 years ago, uh, an iron tool like this would be very expensive. Um, a modern day equivalent would be like borrowing someone's car and then getting in a wreck, right? That, that, that sinking feeling that you have, this is not my vehicle. How am I gonna pay for this? I'm not insured. You know, imagine borrowing someone's vehicle and hydroplaning, something that's out of your control, in the vehicle totals. And so we've all felt feelings like that before, you know, that, that sinking feeling in us. And so back in this day, to get out of this kind of debt, you'd likely have to enter into indentured servitude. You'd essentially have to become a slave and really put in a lot of sweat equity to pay off this kind of debt. And so, in fact, in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, you get this story about this widow, and she's borrowed some money, and the creditor says it's time to pay up, but she can't pay. And it says in chapter 4, verse 1, it says the creditor has come, the guy lending her money, the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So that's the punishment to pay off a debt. Hard labor, you signed your life away. By losing this axe head here, this, this guy who's borrowing it, he doesn't have money to buy his own, it's the sort of thing that he's afraid of, is that he's going to be sold off. It's a great debt to pay. There, there's a life of servitude on the line, and there, there's no more studies under Elisha. You know, his life flashes before his eyes, and that sinking feeling hits. And so it's no wonder he, sh he shouts out, oh no, my master, it was borrowed. Help. What do I do? And so let's zoom out a little bit here from this passage. And again, ask this question, why is it in here? Why is this passage in here? Well, I want you to think this morning about what this passage tells us about God, who he is, what his character is, what his nature is. And so just a minute ago, I said that the chapter before this and the chapter after this is about this grand geopolitical uh, strategy, this military movements, nations are in crisis. Uh, it's talking about big diseases like leprosy and being healed from them. So you get that. And then I think what this passage shows us about God is that in the grand scheme of things, in the things in a world where there's a whole lot of big things going on, that God still pays attention and he cares about the small things like a lost axe head. And so I think this has a message for two, for us too, is that, is that in our world, there's all sorts of big things going on around us. You know, there, there's political strife in the U.S. right now. It's, it's mid-term mid season, right? There's war between Ukraine and Russia. There, there's, there's several countries right now that are on the brink of, brink of economic collapse. There's hurricanes forming in the Gulf. There's humanitarian violations going on in Sudan. And so even in the midst of all these grand, big things going on, that God still cares about the little things in your life. Something as small as a lost axe head. And I think the thing that we do is that we often think about God as being too busy or, or so preoccupied with these big things that he's not able to think about these little things. 
But one of the things that we mean when we speak about the greatness of God is not that we're just talking about only how big he is. Greatness is not bigness. But when we talk about the greatness of God is that he's able to and he does care about the little things that go on in your life. Uh, There's two great quotes here from Ralph Davis, a wonderful scholar, and he says this, the first one, part of his greatness appears in the fact that he does attend to the small problems, the dinky details, the individual needs, the mundane and ordinary affairs of the believer's life. And later he says this, he says, if we don't believe correctly here, then the little problems, the small details, the insignificant matters, they will pile up and we won't cast them on our Father because surely He can't be bothered. So we will think on them, brood on them, fear over them, all because we're too proud to say, my axe head's in the water. Do you see the God that you have? Heaven is His throne, earth is His footstool, and your axe head matters to Him. What a quote. What a statement that this passage makes. And so what do we do with this? If this is your God, if this is accurate about God, then we should be like John Doe Israelite here. Take your cares, take your worries, take your lost axe heads to him. So that's the small problem. Now, it's a very real and valid problem, but it is the small problem nonetheless. So let's look a little closer at how God answers the problem in our second point this morning, a supernatural provision. And so what I want to point out here in this second point is that there's really two ways in this passage that we see that God supernaturally provides here. First, we see his providence. Um, What is providence? I I love the Heidelberg Catechism definition of this. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, pastor in North Carolina, says that it's his favorite Heidelberg Catechism. And it says this, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Great definition of providence there. And so, in other words, here's the Jeremy Britt summary of this. God is in charge. Nothing is by chance. Everything is purposeful. And so, we acknowledge this here in our Apostles' Creed when we say it just about every week. We say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Right? We don't, we don't say He's kind of mighty. He's almighty. And so, it's a wonderful thing to be able to catch a sight of this providence And so, did you see the providence in this passage here? We probably rushed over it when we got to the meat, when we got to the drama. You see, the students, they asked Elisha if they could build. He says, yes. They asked him if he would tag along. He says, yes. And so, you're telling me that he just so happened to be at the right scene on the right day at the right hour when this poor fellow here lost his axe head. Not a chance. And so, what another simple point this passage drives home for us. It's so incredibly easy uh, to dismiss and look over these details in the first four verses of when they ask him to tag along and he says, okay. But but I think a huge take-home here is that when we look back at the story, we see that God's providence, the way that he's 
orchestrating things and upholding them, we see that God's providence was at work even when no one knew it, right? They didn't know that God was using that. And so we might see it as this like filler or fluff or just ordinary everyday things, but God even uses that to work in the lives of his people, to demonstrate his providence and his nature and his character. And so over the years, I've heard countless stories from many of you about how you've seen God's providence in your life over something you had no idea that it was actually important. You wouldn't have thought of anything of it at the time, but then later you realize how God is using even that for your good. And so this is our God who is he's working, he's orchestrating, and he's providing for his people, even in the midst of mundane things like asking someone to come along and be present somewhere. And so he provides in mundane, simple ways. We might not have ever seen it. He provides in a way like a request to join and saying, okay, I'll join. But he also supernaturally provides by doing miracles. Elisha, he's providentially there. He hears the cries of this man. He takes the stick, he throws it in the water, and up floats the axe head. And so here's this helpless, distressed, soon-to-be-in-debt man. And through Elisha, God comes through and he delivers through this miracle. Now, I Googled this because I didn't know and I was curious. And so if there's a geologist out there or an expert in the field of metallurgy and you can correct me on this, uh, please feel free to do so afterwards. So I'm trusting Google here, but there's only three metals on the periodic table of elements that can float. Lithium, sodium, and potassium. But these three elements, these three metals, they're so soft that you can cut them with a knife. And so they're not something that you're making an ax head out of here. And so aside from these three metals, according to the laws of physics, according to the laws of nature, any other metal is going to sink when it enters into water. That is, unless the author of the laws of physics overrules them. Matthew Henry says, he could make iron to swim contrary to its nature, for the God of nature is not tied up to its laws. And so this is not a one-off thing, this miracle here. In fact, the previous four chapters of 2 Kings, Elisha, God's prophet, he's already performed 10 miracles so far up to this point that we know about. And just about every commentary that I consulted made this point to say that, that whenever God does a miracle, it's always to save his people. It's always to save his people. And so whether it's the parting of the Red Sea, or whether it's making an axe head float, or what we'll see in our next point, the miracle of raising the dead, miracles are used to save his people. In fact, i got to share one more time with what Ralph Davis says, just because he's really funny and he's really smart. But he says, this miracle, therefore, was no piece of unnecessary razzle-dazzle. God doesn't do miracles for kicks, right? There's purpose behind the miracles that God does. It's not for nothing. And again, it shows us something else about God, and it's that God loves to deliver his people. He loves to deliver his people. And what we can see from this passage is that no matter what trials we're going through, big or small, he's a God that we can call out to and trust that he will provide. Bill quoted yesterday at the funeral, and we said it in our comfort of the gospel today, Romans 8, 28 and following. And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Then he goes on and he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And y'all, you can take that to the bank. That's never going to be not true. The depths at which he would go to save you, to provide for you, he would reverse the laws of nature. Just a few moments, we're going to sing about this, that those who are in Christ Jesus, those two passages, they're never going to be not true. It's one of my all-time favorite hymns, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. And there's that refrain at the end where it says, Hallelujah, what a Savior, what a friend, saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. And sometimes God provides in the mundane And sometimes he provides in the miraculous. But the net result is the same, and it's that he provides. So we've seen a small problem. We've seen how God answers it with a supernatural provision. Let's look at our third and final point this morning, a simple picture. So I mentioned early on that when I first looked at this passage, I was perplexed and I was curious. And then I read through it again, and, and I started to become amazed by it, right? And here's why. It's that in these seven little verses here, that we have this simple picture. And, and it's a picture of the story of redemption. And so if this is true, everything that we've talked about so far, if this is true, that God cares about the small things in our lives, how much more is he going to care about, care about the big things in your life? Just like this student who loses this axe, it would have sent him into debt. We too have a debt. And it's a debt that we can't pay. There's no amount of years of service that would pay the debt that we have. Um, As we talked about this summer in the Beatitudes, we're we're spiritually bankrupt, right? We are sinful. We pray this in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, right? We have this great debt. And so I think we often think of our sin as like kind of bad, or or our sin is like this, this inconvenience, But the Bible says that our sin actually makes us spiritually dead. Like, it's not just kind of bad. It's it's, it's the worst thing possible, right? And so just as this man here in this passage is relieved of the prospect of debt, God has provided a way for you and me too. And so consider these familiar words from Colossians 2, 13 to 14 in light of this passage, thinking about debt, right? The debt that we have. And you, who were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And that's the key right there, is that he nails it to the cross. And on the cross was Jesus, the Son of God, who came to claim ruined sinners, mess-ups, failures. And he does so by he lives this perfect life that we were required to live. He pays our debt that, that, and he takes on our punishment that was meant for us, death and death on a cross. And so it's the most uneven trade of all time that happens here. That through faith, he grants us his reward, his record, and that he takes on our debt and our punishment. And look at what we just sang 
earlier. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace, and who gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me with his light and wrote his law of righteousness with power on my heart. What a wonderful trade that is for us. And it's uneven. And now, this death that Jesus dies, it would be nothing if it wasn't for the greatest miracle of all, that three days later he rose from the dead. And he would defy the laws of nature yet again. And so what that means is that it, it, it's, it's this bona fide stamp of approval that his person and his work and everything that he did is solidified. It, it's true. And so here's the truth for you today to hear. The same God that delivers in the small things is the same God that delivers in the big things in our lives. And so I'll close with this. What what does this mean for us today? What what do we do when we walk out these doors? What does this passage have to say to us in a world that's full of small troubles and big troubles in our life? Well, I think the first thing that we can take away is that this story here is saying, this is the kind of God that you have. One that provides for his people, one that is near to the brokenhearted, one that is attentive to the needy. Won't you quit turning to the things of this world that fail you and let you down and turn to him? As Dr. Davis says, he says, here is a God who is present and mighty in every sort of emergency. Would that you could have him for your God. It's the same God that promises to one day make an end to all of our troubles, big and small. That one day his people will be with him forever. There's going to be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. And the redeemed will praise the one who rescued him. And so here's your charge today from this passage. Until that day comes, let us continually look to Jesus. Look to the one who is greater than even Elisha, Jesus the friend of sinners. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he's going to come again. In John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, my question for you this morning is, do you believe in this Jesus? Do you know that this God, the God who cares about the big things in life and the small things, he also cares about our each individual needs? Let's pray.